All right, so let's go. Let's get started. We're in First Peter chapter four, and this morning's title is Fortitude: Staying Focused on the Goal. Have you ever set a goal and then gotten distracted from it, right, or gotten knocked sideways, or you know that kind of thing? That's what Peter's addressing at this point, and so we're going to look at that together, and we're going to look at verses seven through nine. And it says this, For the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, it's a great passage. There's a number of really cool little things that we can break out in here. So let's get started. We'll start with the first part. It says, the end of all things is at hand. How many, how many times have you heard that at different parts of history, right? The end is here, right? Kind of thing. And uh, Peter's using this as a focus point for the church. Um, a lot of critics will jump on this and say, see, they got it wrong. Peter had it wrong. He thought Jesus returned in his lifetime and they had it wrong in the early church. We've, we still got it wrong now and there really is no second coming. Where's this second coming we've heard about? It's been the same ever since our fathers. Nothing's changed. It's all made up. They, there's no such thing. But that's not where uh, Peter's coming from. Uh, it is true that there was a very strong sentiment in the early church uh, that Jesus would return in their lifetime, right? And the reason for that was uh, part of the rumor legend about uh, that Jesus would come back before the apostle John died. I think you remember that story, right, where uh, Jesus had been crucified and then they didn't know that he had really risen. And so Peter said, well, let's go back to fishing, right? And they said, okay, we'll follow you. So that's what they knew how to do. So they got back on the boat, fished all night, got zip, right? So they're tired, they're exhausted. And there's this guy on the shore and says, Hey, children, have you caught anything? They go, No. They said, Well, why don't you throw the net over on the other side of the boat? Now, stop for a second. You're a veteran fisherman. Okay? You've been on those seas, you've worked those nets, you know. Is throwing the net on the other side of the boat going to make any difference at all? None. Not a zilch, right? But somehow the guy's voice was compelling, so they'd throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Monster catch fish everywhere, breaking the nets, dragging the boat. And suddenly they realized that guy on the shore, that wasn't just a guy, that was Jesus. Whoops, right? So Peter dies in the water, swims to the shore. They pull the boat and drag the fish. And they come up and here, Jesus got a little barbecue going, got fish cooking on it and like, hey, let's have breakfast. And while they're talking, Jesus does one of the most beautiful things in all the New Testament. He reinstates Peter to ministry. Okay? And, and many of us have gotten a, a, a gorgeous picture of that because Peter had blown it. He'd blown it royally. And Jesus reinstates Peter, right? And so, you know, I just want to say this morning, if you've ever been in a place where you felt disqualified, just go back to Jesus because he'll reinstate you. And, but then out of that comes this little episode we're talking about where Jesus says those immortal words to Peter, follow me, right? And so Peter does, but then he gets distracted immediately, turns and he looks and sees John and he says to the Lord, hey, what about that guy? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
you follow me. And so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so John tried to disqualify it in his writings, but everybody else went, okay, here's the inside word. Jesus has spoken code to us, and, uh, and he's going to come back before John dies. So they're watching John. Right? And they're measuring and they're looking thinking, all right, this is going to happen. Right? And so uh, they had this expectation. Uh, Lloyd uh, C. Douglas wrote a, a novel called The Robe. And in The Robe, uh, there's this Roman centurion who's trying to figure out who this Jesus dude really was and how it was a great read. And, but anyways, he was mystified by the disciples because every time they came to an intersection they would stop and start looking down the various branches of the road going, looking for somebody. He kept going, who are they looking for? Well, they were, they were looking for Jesus, right? And so the early church was rife with expecting Jesus uh, to come back. But Jesus himself said, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He said this in Matthew 24. And so Jesus sets out, hey, it's not quite that simple, right? You thought you had code, you didn't have code, uh, but I will return. It just when isn't known. But having said that, it must be stated there is no timetable where we don't know he won't return, right? So you don't want to be the opposite side going, well, I got lots of time to goof off and, and fool around because he's certainly gonna, not going to return today. When you woke up this morning, do you expect him to come back this morning? Can you imagine if you're sitting at your, no, you're sitting there right now. You know what you're thinking? Lunch. Lunch. Wow, what's for lunch? Well, if he comes back right now, we really aren't going to have to worry too much about lunch. Okay? Matter of fact, a whole lot of things we're worrying about really don't, won't matter at all. As, as Zach talked about, you know, the stuff we're packing in the, the duffel bag, um, it doesn't matter, right? And just think about it. If he came back this morning, you were in church. Oh, yeah. Okay, now the hope is we have the right heart in church, right? But, yeah, rock it. That would be so cool. Right, so it's living uh, with that expectation. So, and the other side of it is that um, when it comes to timelines, um, what's long in terms of human timelines is short in terms of God's timelines. In comparison to eternity, we're just saying Amazing Grace, right? When we've been there for ten thousand years, ten thousand years is a long time. It says we've just begun. So, from God's perspective, that's a short time. It says. Uh, in comparison to eternity, the end of all things are really at hand. Let me help you. If you're over 40, the end of things are at hand. Right? Stuff starts to stack up, right? You start to realize, wow, time is zipping by. I'm like, how in the world is it July? Like, I didn't even get 216 wired in my head yet, and the year's half over. And it's just, blowing. right now in my life, it's blowing by in five-year chunks, right? We sat down, we're talking about eight years the other day and realized that's just going to go zip like that. Okay? And I went, wow, that's phenomenal. That's really fast. And so from that perspective, often um, we don't have things uh, measured the way God does. And in acknowledging the brevity of life on this plane, we're encouraged to have fortitude. This idea of being steadfast, to stay focused on the larger goal. In other words, staying focused on the kingdom. And in light of eternity, Peter places two things in front of us in this verse. He says, the end of all things are at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. 
If you look those up, what self-controlled means is keeping my passions in check. All right? Uh, not letting them run amok. There's a lot of ways that uh, our passions can run amok. For example, let me list a couple I thought of. Uh, we, we can be out of control with food, right? We can be out of control with emotions. We can be out of control with sex. We can be out of control with recreation, right? I only want to do things that are fun, right? Uh, we can be out of control with money. We can out of control with habits. We can out, out of control with hobbies. There's a lot of things where I can be um, not self-controlled. And they run me instead of me being in control of them. So Peter's saying, hey, you need to be self-controlled. And the second thing he says is you need to be sober-minded. Being sober-minded carries the idea of not being inflamed in my mind or in my spirit. Have you ever gotten flamed up with something and it kind of just took over? That's what this is talking about. Certainly now alcohol would fit this description. Uh, We've all probably watched somebody get really drunk. And if you've read the headlines lately, that just happened to one of the Seahawks players and he did some unthinkable things. But it says he was stone cold crazy drunk too, right? And so obviously alcohol would fit into this category. What we say uh, at Northview is that you got to be really careful, right? Uh, that's why a lot of people steer completely clear of it. But we don't legislate it. What we say is it's, it's personal responsibility, right? You have to use discernment and discretion. Some may, others may not. You got to know which camp you're in that the Lord tells you to. If you're in the one camp, don't begrudge those who can. If you're in the camp that can, don't flaunt it in front of those who can't. Exercise love. Exercise discretion. All right? That's where we come from. But there's some other things besides alcohol because if you think about it, when it comes to alcohol, what does alcohol just do? It lowers the, the barriers, right? And other things squirt out besides what you thought was there. So let me list a couple things uh, that squirt out in terms of being sober-minded. Um, some other things. You ever been flamed by lust? Right? You ever have lust take over your mind and, and just, you're not thinking straight anymore? Right? You're inflamed that way. Or how about anger? Right? You ever been inflamed with anger? Well, I'm so mad I can't what? See straight. That means I'm so mad I'm no longer sober-minded. I'm no longer in control. The anger has taken over and it's controlling my attitude, my tongue, everything. I'm burning everybody up, including myself. Um, what the Bible calls foolishness. Have you ever had a plan and the wisdom people in your life said, ah, that probably wouldn't be too wise to do that. You just go, well, I'm going to do it anyways. Right? And you can be... Uh, Flamed with foolishness. Things that you know really the Lord won't honor, but you're going to do them anyways just because you want to. And so we can lose our sober-mindedness that way. Um, how about pride? You ever been inflamed with pride, right? I'm really hot stuff. Look at me. The world's lucky to have me kind of deal. Uh, another one that grabs us and, and we lose our ability to think straight is bitterness. You ever been grabbed by bitterness, right? If you get grabbed by bitterness, you can't see anything else but that thing. And you're just, it, you're choked with it, right? You're no longer thinking with what the Bible would say, a clear or sober-minded mindset because it's, it's, swallowed by, it's swallowed by bitterness. Anyways, to have a clear mind is held in high esteem in the Bible and it's necessary for the proper fear of God and the obtainment of wisdom. 
If you read the Proverbs, that's all uh, our men's group is going through Proverbs right now. And you just read these sayings of wisdom, right? And it all has to do with um, this idea of being sober-minded. But if you look uh, at this verse, what it says is, the end of all things, and therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. What's the reason for it? It's for to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, I've hammered on this a lot, right? Couples, you know this. I have said that as couples, we need to be praying together, that that is one of the number one calls uh, in a church, and that Satan works overtime to keep that from happening. And by the way, I have had a number of couples come up to me and say, Steve, we've actually started to pray together. It is clumsy. It is awkward. It is weird. But we're doing it, and stuff is changing. And it's, it's kind of cool in a weird sort of way. And we're actually enjoying it. So I just want to um, give you the news that uh, people have been listening and they are starting to pray together. And, uh, and I want to encourage that. Single people, you don't have a marriage partner, so you need to find a posse, somebody who is your prayer group that you can pray with. But in this whole thing about prayer, what you find is if you're not... Uh, self-controlled and you're not um, sober-minded, you can really get distracted in prayer. You ever tried to pray and then get distracted? Right? You ever start to pray and the phone rings? Amazing how nobody calls you till you try to pray. Right? Your pocket buzzing. I'm trying to pray. Right? Kind of thing. Or some dumb bird is outside your window. Like, you're like, stupid. Or it's a crow. Shoot the thing. Right? Now you're all consumed about killing the crow and not praying. Right? It's just, and, and there's enormous distractions to that kind of thing to where we really don't end up praying. Well, why should we be self-controlled and sober-minded? What Peter's saying here is that it's important for the sake of prayer. Prayer requires focus. If you think about it when you've tried to pray, it requires focus. And if we're focused on the kingdom, then we pray about the kingdom. If we are, on the other hand, distracted, if we are cluttered, uh, if we're scattered, busy, etc., then we tend to pray really poorly. It's kind of like, dear Jesus, please help me because I'm driving to work and I have to do this thing and I don't want to do it anyways and it's all going to turn out bad and I'm probably going to yell at him, but I hope you're involved in it. Amen. Right? You ever pray prayers like that? Right? It just We're praying very poorly. We're not sitting down saying, okay, stop for a second. What's really here, Lord? What do you have for me? What am I supposed to cooperate with? And what are you trying to bring out of this situation? That's a completely different way to pray. Peter is strongly encouraging them to continue to pray. Why? Because they're, they're facing persecution and suffering. Right? And so he's saying, hey, in the midst of that, don't forget to keep praying and, and to keep in prayer. One of the things about persecution and suffering, uh, it's interesting though, is that... Um, it's amazing when we hit hard times, we actually really start to pray well. Have you noticed that? If you have a health crisis, uh, finances go you know, through the floor, uh, the, you know, the transmission drops and then the washer goes out and then you got a bill. You didn't, and instead of the date night you were playing, now you, you're not even sure how you're going to pay one of the bills, let alone all of them. Uh, or you get a health crisis. I had somebody walk up after second service and say, wow, that was my target. I, I had a scan and I have a mass and... I, I, I'm going in tomorrow to confirm what it is, right? It's amazing when that hits, you tend to pray really well. Why? Because persecution and suffering shuffles the deck. It clears it. 
and now you become focused on that one thing with you and the Lord, then it really helps you pray in a significant way. I, I think what it does is it really clears the deck. Distractions, uh, it, it takes away the distraction. It makes what's really important really important. And if you think about it, it's during these times that you have prayed the most. Right? And so Peter's pointing that out to him and saying, hey, stay with it. Keep praying. Then he goes on to a number of one-line sentences that we'll take a look at. Here's some other ones that he pulls out here. So above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, the statement there means priority number one. Keep it at the top of the list. Above all, keep on loving one another and he uses the word earnestly. You know, if, if you uh, think of these instructions, as Peter was saying to this church, what he's saying is amid all the sufferings and amid all the chaos, keep loving one another earnestly. If you love the Lord, then you're going to pray to Him. And you're going to love His Word. And you're going to love His bride. And that means that uh, we have to learn to love each other. And one of the things you realize as you grow and come to understand the kingdom is that love is a long-term proposition. Any of you have ever thought it was a five-minute proposition? Right? Oh, I'll learn to love other people. It'll be easy. And you're still figuring out how that works. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, I was talking with Al Robert this week. Al is one of our elders. And he said something that I thought was brilliant. And I said, can I steal it for the message? He goes, sure. And we were talking about marriage and, and how you think uh, before you're married versus how you think after you're married. All right? And... Uh, Al said this, he said, when someone is getting married, he says, you really don't know who you are marrying until you marry them. Right? And all the married people are going, yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? Because you, it takes the getting married part to realize who you actually married. And in that, we all think, oh, that'll be so easy because we're alike and we'll be together and we'll just get along. And, and I always ask couples, okay, so how do you handle conflict and uh, how are you going to fight? Well, why is that important? Well, because you're going to fight. No, right? And, and then they get married and they realize, oh my goodness, this is going to be hard. This is going to be long. This is not going away, right? And uh, how, what did I do? Oh my goodness. And it, what happens though, you need to know something. If, if you're new to Norfolk, Norfolk knows this, but uh, just for your sake, I'll help you in. God designed marriage for two very specific reasons. Number one, to, to rid us of our selfishness. Okay? It's ruthlessly designed to rid us of our selfishness. Second thing that it's designed to do is ruthlessly designed to get rid of our self-pity. You know, the woes is me, the whines, that kind of stuff. And marriage is unbelievably efficient at doing that. Okay? And so we get into it, we don't think... Did you think when you were engaged and in love right you were there did you think it will you would have to pray as hard as you did about that over here any of you surprised by that any of you like never did i dream i'd be praying this hard right and yet it does and so peter's talking about not only is that true here um when someone's getting married but it's also true for the church the bride of christ we learned that to love each other isn't near as simple as we thought it would be. Right? You ever walk in church on a Sunday and just go, I hope nobody talks to me. I, I don't want to interact. I don't want to relate. And I really don't want to love anybody. 
So you're just going to walk in church, punch the time card, throw God his bone, and walk back out and grab whatever that thing is that you've been gnawing on. And you certainly don't want some brother or sister in Christ walking up, looking at you and going, how you doing, Craig? Right? Looking right next. Stop that. Quit looking at my eyes. Get out. I'm fine. Right? What's, what do we find out about? It's hard to love. Right? And sometimes we don't feel very loving. And sometimes we're just cranks. And we've come in and we're not prepared to love earnestly. Okay? We're prepared to posture love, but we're not really prepared to actually love. And that can be true in church. That can be true in our marriage. That can be true with our kids. That can be true in our neighborhood. That can be true with ourselves. Right? Sometimes we posture love for ourselves. And so... For the bride of Christ, our love should be earnest and we are to be in relationship with each other. Um, at Northview, uh, we mirror that idea um, when we say don't do life alone. Right? We don't want people who come and just sit and do life alone. We want you to be in community and actually learn how to love and how to love other people because it's that important. There are many ways at Northview, if you are coming to church, you're looking at us as a church home, a lot of ways to be engaged in relationship. But one of the best ways especially if you're new and especially if you haven't found a ministry role yet that naturally puts you in relationship with people is what we would call community groups, all right? Small group ministry, community groups, because there you actually have a group of people that you get together with and you become known in that group. And when we do that, uh, community groups, we say this uh, about community groups. If you go on our website, it says, community groups provide true relationships with others so that you can live out the gospel by, notice what it's saying here, by praying together, encouraging one another, and studying the Bible for the glory of God and the multiplication of his followers. By praying together. You know, community groups aren't magic. You don't walk into a community group and suddenly become super Christian. Oh, it's awesome, the whole Christian life works, this is so fabulous. No, we bring our junk right? We got our cards closed and we got our walls up and no, I don't want you to know what my life's like and that kind of, but slowly that starts, you know, God starts to peel the fingers, right? And the cards start to drop and, and you start sharing stuff you never thought you'd share. And then you find out people are really there with you and you start to depend on, and you know, you've really fallen in love with them when one of them has to leave and they move. Like uh, if you were in Robin Teresa's group and suddenly there, and then you find yourself crying because they're leaving. You know, whoa, God has really changed my heart about how I feel about this group of people. Well, community groups is a way to actually learn love practically in a large church. We have three services. You can't get to everybody. You can't even see everybody. How are you going to find somebody to love? Well, you're going to find somebody to love in a small group, right? Where you get to share what Jesus has done for you and they get to share what Jesus has done for them. And then you get to learn what their weirdness is and you get to learn what your weirdness is, right? And together you get to be weird for Jesus and it's a beautiful thing because God uses all of that. All right, the next thing, God, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This also works. So if you're a community group leader and you have people over to your house, it can be easy to have a community group in your house and then grumble. Look at, they never bring anything and look at their shoes on my floor and they're messing up and, you know, this is costing me and the grocery bill and, and the light bill and I think I'm going to start taking an offering of a house to cover community groups and this is really, right? And, and we have a tendency to grumble and complain. And scripture in the strongest words urges us not to be grumblers 
or complainers. And Peter here picks up this theme again. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Within the Christian fellowship, show hospitality, but have it from a good heart. Now, biblical hospitality is both a command and an exhortation. But hospitality, as I'm saying, must come from the heart. In other words, we try to oftentimes start from the outside and hope it'll work into the center. And, well, God, it's your fault because you didn't get all the way in. That's why it didn't work. God goes, no, let's blow it up from the inside first. Let's get your heart right. Then hospitality will work really well. Right? So God starts. You ever done that? He does that on giving. He does that on sharing. He does that on serving. He does that all. He works from the inside out. It must be inwardly motivated, not outwardly postured. Think about that for a sec. It must be done as unto Christ and not for social status or reputation. Proverbs 23, 6-8 says this, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. You ever been at a home where you feel like you're being measured and calculated? Right? How long are they going to stay? Okay? Right. Kind of deal. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. He says you will vomit up the morsels that you've eaten and waste your pleasant words. Right? We've been in places where we've been calculated. God says, look, you know how that felt, so don't do it to other people. Right? Have hospitality. Let people in your home. But do it with joy. Do it with right motives. And then Peter goes on to giftedness. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very varied grace. The New Testament is very clear that all who are in Christ, who have been redeemed by Him, have also been gifted by Him. Now there's two ways that this giftedness works. The first way giftedness works is some of our giftedness is innate. In other words, it was born in us. We, we would say, for example, with some athletes, that's a God-given talent, right? Because we recognize they've got something that other people can't do. And so some of our giftedness is innate. And uh, when, when we get that kind of giftedness, what happens is through the course of life, we come alive to the Lord, we come to know Him, we come in the kingdom, and then that stuff that's already in us starts popping out. And we go, oh, that's why I'm wired like this. That's why I've always done this. Oh, here's the place. It plugs in this slot. Hey, this is a kick, right? And we suddenly realize we're, we're having fun. Where that Before we knew Jesus, it was always our worst problem. Now it's actually the thing that's exciting about the kingdom. And so that's one style of giftedness. The other one is that some of our giftedness is given. It's given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us a capacity or an ability that we did not previously have uh, that uh, was given purposely for the service in the kingdom. And so other people suddenly go, hey, we recognize something in you. You'd, you'd be good at that. I would? Yeah, we've seen you. We've seen... You have? Yeah. I remember when I was first a believer in the church in Green Bay, and um, people came up to me and said, Steve, You'd make a great youth pastor. Really awesome. What's a youth pastor? I honestly didn't know. I didn't have that in my background. I didn't have any idea of what that was. I didn't know what that looked like. Um, But numerous people uh, came up. I remember uh, uh, one lady, she was in her, she was 78 at the time, Marcella. And she came up to me and she said, Steve, I had a dream about you last night. And I said to her, that's kinky, right? She goes, stop it. Right, and I, I said, "Well, you know, what was your dream?" And she said, "I dreamed you you were going to be a youth pastor." And I said, "Really?" And she said, "Yes." And I've actually, 
I'm so sure this is from the Lord. I've bought you a suit that you can use while you're youth pastoring. I said, you're kidding. She said, no. And once you know it, um, I didn't take her up on the offer. I said, well, look, I don't wear suits, so let's not do that right now. But six months later, I was asked by Jan to come out to Seattle and be the youth pastor at North Shore Baptist Church. And standing at the door of the church was Marcella Baldwin with the suit. I told you you'd need it. And so the first marrying and bearing and wedding suit I had came from a 70-year-old lady who said, I believe you're going to make a great youth pastor and I'm going to help you on the way. Right? And, and I did stuff that I never knew I could do. Right? And, you know, a lot of the Christian life is, we get into this thing, by the way, this doesn't work at this church. You know, if somebody asks you to do something, we say, oh, that's not my gift. Okay, blow that out your nose. All right? Just... <laughs> Just blow it out your nose because that don't work here because we need help and we don't care if you're gifted or not, okay? We, we just need bodies, okay? We need help and people need mentors and, and so we don't care if you're gifted or not. Now, there may be some things you're better at, but just get started, okay? And you'd be amazed if you get started. You're helping in one area uh, and all of a sudden people go, hey, could you help with this? And all of a sudden it turns into something that you're suddenly really good at and that giftedness explodes like that. Peter says, each of us has received a gift. Use it, and here's the key point, to what? Serve one another. Notice the gifts are not, they're given for service. It is not to be used, it's to be used in the service of one another. They are not given for my edification, my promotion, my ego, my motives, my goals, although our flesh will twist them that way, right? Use it for me, hey, look at me, make me look good. That's not how they're given. They're made to make the body look good. And they're given so that Jesus would look good. They are given for the edification, the strengthening of others. Uh, there's other extensive lists of giftedness in the New Testament. There's the list in Ephesians. You have the list in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. You have the list in Romans 12. There's a lot. But Peter breaks it down into two basic uh, camps. He says this, Whoever speaks, speak as um, one who speaks the oracles of God, Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So as I said, he breaks them down. You can see in the list he has speaking gifts and then he has service gifts. Um, Notice that in this listing, both are equally important. And I think that's an important distinction to point out because often we will give more credit to the speaking gifts, right? Because they're observable, they have an impact, and, and so... Uh, we think those who have a speaking gift are on a higher plane spiritually than those of us who don't. Uh, for example, I'm the pastor, and so uh, I must obviously be more spiritual than you because I'm up front every Sunday morning, and, and I walk with God, and you don't speak, so you don't. Right? Well, hopefully I'm walking with God. That would be a good thing, and hopefully I've worked hard at what I do. But what Peter's saying is, no, the service gifts are every bit as important as the speaking gifts. Let me... Um, give you an example of this. So I have to speak and I, should, I better do a good job, right? That's important. But there's a, there's a group in our church that nobody knows about. Fantastic group of people. And uh, it's the custodial crew. Okay? And right now, by the way, we have a really great custodial crew and they're doing really cool stuff. And they're doing some stuff we haven't gotten done for a long time and uh, they're bebopping around with their headphones on and doing all this stuff. But... They, they do all the, all the dirty things that nobody else wants to do. What kind of dirty things? They clean the toilets. 
They wash out the sinks. They mop the floors. They vacuum. You know, when you sat in service and tore your bulletin up in a thousand pieces and drop on the floor and then leave the coffee cup beside it, besides? Yeah, they pick that up. Okay? They go in the bathroom and they, they clean out the diaper bin. I guarantee if they didn't do that within a week or two, we'd notice something really quickly in our church, right? And what it is, is that they're serving absolutely invisibly. They're serving to help the body and they help in a really significant way. Nobody even sees it, but the whole body's blessed because of it. Okay? And in God's eyes, that's every bit as significant as what I do. I don't have to serve because I don't have any gifts because I'm not the pastor. That's Peter saying, no, 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 no. God gives gifts to everyone in the body. Everybody has talents that need to be discovered and need to be worked. So there's the proclamation side of the gospel, but there's also the service side of the gospel, right? They work and both, not either or. One proclaims that God cares. The other is to show that God cares. If you are here this morning uh, looking at all that's been put together here, right? You've come to Norfolk and said, wow, okay? It's been put together by the exercise of very gifts that God has given for his body. This body in particular, for the expression of God's love for people and you in particular, right? People say all the time, hey, Steve, how's your church doing? I go, it's not my church. I didn't build this. Now, I had a role in all this happening, but this isn't Steve's church. It's Jesus' church. And in that, he put together a body. He's grown the body. And he's given us all these different gifts. And because of people who have gifts of giving and because people have gifts of service and people have gifts of ministry and compassion and service and speaking, this body's come together. And everything you see here has happened because God has used the gifts of the body to make it happen. It isn't one person. Okay, One person never does the whole thing. It, it's a team of people. And that's what Peter's trying to emphasize, emphasize here. All right. Well, what's the conclusion of this? It's all done that God would get glory through Jesus Christ. And Peter says, to him belong the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our job is to cooperate together and love each other earnestly, to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that our prayers won't be hindered. Why? So that the manifest presence of Christ is among us. So that when people walk in, they go, God is really among you. Wow. Their thoughts get read. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them and they go, I've never had something like that happen before. You ever sat in the audience and thought the message was made just for you and you wanted to jump out of your seat because the pastor was bulleting you? That really isn't the pastor. The pastor has no idea. That's the Holy Spirit. And all of this has been put together so that God could work in the Mill Creek community. And we're not the only church that he's done that for so that people could be impacted for the gospel. And so Peter's here is talking about Hey, church, I know you're under persecution. I know you're under suffering. But have fortitude. Stay with the goal. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded so that your prayers won't be hindered. And I think that's a great word from Peter to his church. I think it's a great word from Peter for our church. Right? And I think we have to stay focused on the same kind of things. We need to show hospitality. And we need to exercise our gifts. So let's pray together. Father, as we come to this, there's a lot of points in this message And I doubt all of the points are going to hit everybody the same way, but some of the points, specific ones, are going to hit individuals in very precise ways. And this morning is not, um, did I cover everything right? This morning is what struck the people who were listening for you? What did they hear? What, as Zach said earlier, 
What's the one thing that stood out to them? And, and Lord, what needs to get out of our duffel bag? And what needs to be put in our duffel bag? How do we stay focused on the kingdom and pray in such a way that we could identify that stuff? We seek you for that this morning. We ask that you would help us uh, because we're easily distracted and we're easily tipped. Would you help us stay focused? And we ask this in your name. Amen.